Kreusor. Hello and welcome to the CC4 Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcasts. I'm Stephen Hedges. Welcome to part two of Daffodil Days, where we've been talking about Glamorgan's championship winning season of 1997 with Graham Lloyd, author of the book of the same name, and Mike Fatkin, secretary of Glamorgan at the time, Joan Pocket, one of the reception team, and our own Alan Rees-Chivers, who was a young Glamorgan supporter in 1997. We pick up from where we left off. Having talked about Duncan Fletcher, we moved on to talk about the players that brought the trophy home. As a batsman, you just got to look in the record books. I thought he did very well in 1997. I thought he just played very well. When the beginnings were required, he was there. And his, his innings down in Taunton was crucial. I just thought he had a wonderful send-off from De Morgan. Uh, the, the one thing I, I thought about, Hugh, is that the top and tail of the season, the first game he got a double hundred and then Donald managed to knock him out. Um, yeah. I mean, how you get to 230-odd and you don't see the ball like a, a football, I don't know. But only Hugh could, could, could have that happen to him. And then it, the way left, you know, he gets 100 at Taunton, Gorgon in the championship. And we, we'd been talking for a couple of weeks. I knew he'd applied for the job at technical director of the ECB. But to finish on that, that high. I mean, Tony Lewis used to say to us that 99% of players leave on a bad note because they're either fired or they get injured. He scripted it and he just walked out on his own terms and, and good on him for that. And and Steve, I mean, Steve James, I don't know whether Graham was going to talk about Steve James, but he was the best player we had in the year. No, no doubt about it. I think he was the player's player of the year. He scored hundreds for fun, you know, probably three quarters of them down the third man, but he, he, he absolutely gave them the starts every single time. Steve, he was terrific that year. Yeah, well, the chapter on Steve in the book, it says it is not good enough for England. Was there a real sense of, of kind of, uh, he was a player that hadn't really had the opportunities to, to play test Yeah, I, I, possibly. In my, I'm not sure if it was in 97 or it was around the time, that I don't know when he first played, I think it was the following year. Me, me and Dean Conn were very pally with David Graydon, he'd just been appointed as the the chairman of selectors or chief selector or whatever. And he always used to moan that Glamorgan media in particular, Eddie Bevan and Phil Blanche and all these people were giving him a really hard time about not looking at the Morgan players. And, you know, me and Dean have got a little bit of mischief to us, the pair of us. And we, so we wrote a letter <laughs> about being, you know, more or less disgusted of Tunbridge Wells, but just sort of put Pont van Frythe in there or something and, and got it typed up and put it on Grav's windscreen. And he was, came back the following day and he came into the office and he said, this is the kind of thing I'm up against and read it to us. And we just couldn't stop ourselves laughing. <laughs> you know, and it was, it was it, I think we accused the England selectors of being borderline institutional racist against the Welsh for not picking Steve <laughs> Peter Walker said some lovely things during the book, Graham, but when he was talking about Hugh Morris and, and, and batsmen like Hugh Morris, he said they're the canvas upon which players like Matthew Maynard's, the Matthew Maynard's of this world, throw a few brilliant spots of colour. The real foundation of, of Glamorgan's successes. He was, and as Mike said, he, he started off with a century and ended with a century. Yeah, and I think the point that Peter Walker was making was that in that last game at Taunton, Matthew's innings that day, I, I wasn't there. I came the next day, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. But I understand that you saw the chalk and cheese. You saw Hugh Morris, the, the solid opener, scoring lots of runs, and then Matthew coming in and playing a very responsible innings. You had both of the batsmen showing off their different skills virtually on the same day. Alan, Joan, any memories of, of Hugh or of Steve? One of the innings that I can remember, Hugh, I think it was 94, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but an unbeaten 1-2-7 against Surrey. It was a one-day game at St. Helens. That 
to this day, I can still remember the innings. It, it just struck me as a quite an exciting one-day game and just watching him in full flow. I think that was probably one of my earliest memories of watching him play. And then the following year in 95, I was actually mascot at St. Helens in a, a Durham one-day game, which was unfortunately memorable for a few bad reasons. One of them being that it was Roland Lefebvre's last game when you stretch it off. And I don't know, maybe Mike and Joan will remember the logistical side of this, but there's actually a brawl in the car park on the wreck between uh, a couple of uh, blue and orange wig brigades. I think it probably just makes a change from the, the the venue of the brawl would have just changed for that particular game. I mean, it could have been the bar, the outfield, the Mumbles Road. We always used to have bother there on the Sunday. We had to close the bars, and it was just how it was in those days. You know, people. I don't think Sunday opening was that regular, and people just saw the cricket as a way to keep drinking all day. So, I'm, my apologies for that. Not that I should be apologising for it, but. <laughs> And of course, at the end of the game, then as well, Matthew Maynard with that overthrow as well. We'd have won the game if it wasn't for that. But uh, there we are. I suppose he made up for it in uh, in plenty of other innings over the years, didn't he? And Joan, Steve, Steve James. Uh, yes, I w- well, it was my first season, so I was sort of like a little less outspoken as I was twenty three years later when I left. Um, so I was very quiet, but. They were both very, very courteous men. Uh, Hugh, um, I think if I'm right, was his last season, but Steve was there for a couple more seasons. And I did get to know Steve a, a lot better uh, and his family, obviously. Am I right in thinking there was a, 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 a Sunday league game at Pontypridd that season where there were um, trees collapsing? And Was it that year the tree <laughs> fell on the office? Was it that, that year? I, I, I remember because I was in the office. Um, and I just remember emerging and seeing this tree stuck on. I don't know how that happened, but yeah, hey, I don't remember it being a particularly blustery day, to be honest. But I, yeah. I don't remember the tree. I don't remember the tree falling in the office. Uh, although Carolyn and I were very interested in the streaker that uh, took part in in Harris Park. Just the one? one. One. I don't know whether it was '97, but there was one game we played at Pontypridd. We had eight streakers, and you're just thinking. I mean, you know, doing it once is not particularly funny, but when you're the eighth person doing it, do you really think you're going to get a laugh? It, yeah, it does get boring after a while. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, let's let's go back to uh, one one of the imports for for 1997, Wakar Yunus. Let's begin with uh, Alan. How, your memories of Wakar, Alan? Again, seeing this huge global superstar playing for Glamorgan. It was fantastic as a youngster to be able to watch somebody of that quality. As uh, as Mike said earlier on, he, he just added something maybe that the team didn't have at that point. Obviously, when I was a child, my favourite player was Steve Watkin. I absolutely loved watching him play, watching him bowling. I think he's one of the best bowlers I've seen. But as you say, Wacker, I think, just kind of upped it that little bit more and gave Glamorgan a real edge. And it was just so exciting to watch him play Joan, did you have much contact with Wacker? Uh, I found it very exciting, the uh, young ladies that followed Wacker around the ground. There were uh, some young ladies that actually stood in the old pavilion. Uh, the stand used to come up, the last row used to come up against the players' balcony. And we did have one or two young ladies who liked to watch the balcony rather than the match when Wacker was sitting up there. He was a lovely guy. He was really, really nice. Remember Wacker not being recognised. He had a jag from um, Green's Motors in Haverford West. John Green used to get a 
a, a very, very posh car for the overseas player. And um, it, in the middle of the game, they were doing a promo photograph at the top end of the ground, but you could only get there by driving out of the main gates and up the spine road and through the top gates. And because Wacker was in his kit, Tony Dillaway drove it for him. So they're coming through the gates and the steward was on Wacker's side and, and Wacker said, oh, I'm here to do a promo. And he, he just said, we well, can't come in here. You know, I'm sorry, you can't come in here. And then he looked forward, he leaned down, he saw Tony, he said, oh, Tony, you're okay. <laughs> just let him in. <laughs> um, so it's like Wacker being refused. But I, I remember with um, Wacker as well, second or third game, again, Graham, I don't know which one it was, Alan may know as well. We played Kent away, but Wacker was bowling at David Fulton and three balls, he just speared it past him and Fulton was late on it and missed it and played and missed. And uh, I think the fifth time it happened, Wacker came walking down the wicket and looked at Fulton. I'm going to remove the expletive. And he just said, you haven't got a clue, have you? And just walked back again. Um, and you're just thinking, for once, we had that firepower on our side. Um, you know, what he bless him, I totally agree with Alan. Wonderful bowler, but he wouldn't frighten the life out of you in terms of pace. Wacker would. You know, you wouldn't want to get your legs in the way there. And you're just thinking, this is brilliant. April's barely out and we've got a bloke who can knock their ankles over. It's fantastic. Say, I'm just having a quick look at the book. And um, in fact, Mike, I think it was, yes, you're right. It, it was against Kent, but it was Kent's Nigel Long. Nigel Long. Okay. I thought it was, sorry, to, apologies to David Fulton then. <laughs> I'm sure he's listening. My involvement with Wacker was I saw him one or two times during the season. But um, Mike, if, if you remember, you, you gave me a list of all the players and I rang Wacker and I didn't hear anything for a while. And then no, one day, no surprise. Yeah, one day, um, my phone went, and I had a, about a half an hour conversation with him. And the title of this chapter is "Wakar is a Welshman." Well, I'd also like to say Wakar was and probably is still a gentleman because he gave me half an hour of his time. And that chapter is one of the. It was one of the most enjoyable to write because he just gave me so, so much and so much information. And he said basically. I've finished the chapter off. The people in Wales were really loving and sweet to me. I'm really grateful to them for thinking of me as one of their own. I'll continue to work very hard on the field. And if I can give them more happiness in the future, I'll be really glad. Well, he gave me a tremendous amount of happiness because, it, as I say, it was one of the most enjoyable chapters to write. What a gent. He's a, he was a lovely guy. When we were at Taunton, um, the last game of the season, obviously, I remember coming down the stairs. I never used to trust the players. We were winning things now, and I thought, I'm taking this cup back. I'm not letting you, you know, break your dent or anything. And the, the first first member I passed, Morgan member, he went, oh, it's going to be difficult to follow that. And I just immediately thought, we've just won the first championship in you know, 30-odd years or whatever. And immediately, all that person's thinking about is what's going to happen at the start of next season. But as that member was coming downstairs, he was followed by Wacky Eunice in a Nelson Mandela mask. And I never understood quite why he had a Nelson Mandela mask on, but he did. OK, um, we haven't really mentioned uh, the captain so far, Matthew Maynard, who'd like to... No, let's not bother with him. We'll move on to the next one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> a bit harsh, Mike. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm biased because he's still a very close friend of mine. You know, I mean, I think when he used to play cricket, I, I always used to say he empties bars, and he probably including the one that he was in at the time. Um, I, I thought he was the best Camorgan player I've ever seen. Um, I remember when Alan Butcher suggested that he wanted him to be his vice-captain, which would have been 
91, somewhere around about there, I thought Butch had lost the plot. You know, how can you give that to Matt? You know, because he was a tearaway. But in terms of cricketing brains, absolutely incredible. And I thought he was he was a proper captain to that team. Probably the best captain we've had. Really, I'd just like to endorse what Mike said. And I, I'd just like to read a little bit from the book, if I may, Stephen. Um, Alan Jones is talking about Matthew's uh, innings at Taunton. And he says, we needed a big knock from him. And from the first over... When he went back in on the second day, he just middled everything. Nobody could match him. Hugh Morris played a brilliant innings at the other end because he just let Matthew carry on in his own way while he dabbed it here and pushed it there. You can't compete with Matthew when he's going like that. And Hugh knew that. Significantly, most of Matthew's run came along the floor. He wasn't hitting the ball in the air very much. And then I, I write, and I think this sums up Matthew Maynard, it was fitting that on the ground where one of his idols, Viv Richards, had established his reputation, Matthew Maynard should graduate to matching fitness. Recklessness had been replaced by responsibility, the cavalier tempered by caution. Batting was made to look ridiculously easy, head and heart in harmony. And as the innings unfolded, Duncan Fletcher watched in awe from the Glamorgan balcony. He's an incredible batsman, one of the best I've seen. His 100 in the dark at Taunton was unbelievably brilliant. And that, to me, says it all, frankly. I loved it. You mentioned Alan Jones. I loved Alan Jones. I'm involved helping the former players now, and just in terms of keeping them in touch with one another. And um, one of the reunions a couple of years ago now, when an Iron Donald was still playing for Glamorgan before he went to Hampshire, um, and he played a lovely cameo, sort of 40, and got out. And Matt had come down from across the dressing room and Alan was there with the former players looking absolutely spick and span like Alan always looks. He's just chatting away and, and Matt just happened to say, oh, I thought I gave it away there. And, and Alan just knowingly said, I, I, you know, I'm nodding away when I'm saying it, but yes, yes, yes. I'd like somebody I can remember, Matthew. You know, just, and you just know, and Matthew just sort of smirked and thought, yeah, okay, I've been done that. <laughs> Alan, do you remember? Were you there for that innings at Taunton? Yes, uh, yeah, I was, I was at, uh, at Taunton. I didn't actually see Matt's innings, though. I was actually in school. All right. So, You're was, making uh, us feel very old here. <laughs> so I think I'm right in saying it was on the uh, it was the Thursday, wasn't it? I think. And uh, obviously, I was in school, so I didn't get to see that. But uh, came came home and watched a little bit on telly. And uh, yeah, as you say, it's a class player. But I don't think you can talk about Matt without mentioning basically the, the Maynard family. So they, they just, to me, they summed up what Glamorgan was all about in those days. The, the family atmosphere, you know, Matt, Sue, Tom and Kerry. And obviously, you know, everybody misses Tom hugely at the club. I, I know that much. And uh it was just great in those days to always see them there. And obviously Matt's mum as well was a regular visitor to the ground. It kind of summed up to me what Glamorgan meant when you saw them, the Maynard family together. Obviously well, Tom, Tom, Tom actually during that season would have pestered a lot of people on the boundary, um, you know, because if you got involved in throwdowns with him, you never got away. Um, because you just want people to throw a ball at him. And interestingly, I'm going to put a different hat on, but through the Tom Maynard Trust, I know Matt and Hugh were talking about a project to get a net area at Sapphire Gardens dedicated to that, you know, sort of family throwdown area in Tom's name, which I think is a terrific idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah I, I wasn't aware of that, Mike, but as you say, one of my memories of Tom is just, as you say, always had a bat in his hand. He, he never bowled, 
always batted. And being being somebody who loved bowling myself, it never particularly bothered me until I kind of wanted to have a little go. And then you kind of try to prize the bat out of his hand. And just... you, you could, it was dangerous. You just you'd see people walking past as somebody said, oh, I'll give you a throw. And you're just shaking your head thinking, you've had it now. That's your, <laughs> that's your day gone. <laughs> So it's just so competitive, even at sort of eight year old as he would have been then, isn't it? And uh, yeah. that was just, it was great growing up watching him kind of. But Joe, Joe, Joe's right, though. And it wasn't just, he said, the Crofty, Crofty's family were there regularly. Steve James's parents were there regularly. Watty's mum was there regularly. You know, you, mm-hmm. it was like an extended family as well, wasn't it? Mm. It was. It was very much like an extended family and uh, everybody sort of made us feel as if we were part of their family all the time. Two England players we haven't mentioned so far, Robert Croft and Steve Watkin. Anybody got any specific uh, memories about them? I remember Crofty upsetting Fletch at Abigail Any, (laughs) cut his socks and... um, Duncan was not pleased. <laughs> I'm genuinely not pleased. And it's, I think even Rob realised he'd probably crossed the line there. Rob was a terrific player, absolutely terrific player. And, um, you know, he contributed hugely that year. There are a number of players we haven't mentioned from the, the, the final 11 that took the field in Taunton. The names I've got in front of me, Tony Cotty, Darren Thomas, Adrian Dale, Adrian Shaw, Dean Koska. Any particular memories about sure, those players. And they Shorzy, them. Sorry, I'm, I feel I'm hogging this, so tell me to shut up if, you, if, <laughs> if I'm talking too much. But Shorzy probably didn't expect to play at all because Colin Metz was a terrific wiki, wiki keeper, one of the very, very best I've ever seen. Um, but I was probably as good a batsman as Colin, um, even now. <laughs> um, he, he wasn't the greatest, but the balance of the side had to change because they wanted, they felt that Crofty was probably going to be batting one too high at six or seven. Um, and therefore they needed Shawsey in there. So they picked him and he wasn't, he wasn't anything, and he'll admit it himself, he was nowhere near Colin as a keeper. Um, and I remember, Joan may remember this as well, but we used to get letters from somebody, you know, the same person writing on a regular basis, complaining that Colin Metzen was being overlooked. Adrian Shaw, it was terrible. Why was he being picked? And Maynard should be sacked and Fletcher should go home and all this kind of stuff. And even after we won the championship, we had a letter saying that we would have won the championship earlier if Colin had been playing in the team. And at one point we thought it might have been from Colin. <laughs> <laughs> we used to get uh, letters quite regularly from um, various people around the country. If they took a fancy to one of the players and they weren't playing, they always had something to complain about. We mentioned there about Dean Koska. Dean played, I don't think he played eight or nine games, something like that. But he got picked for England under 19 during the August period. And for some reason, that had priority over first-class championship cricket, which Fletch couldn't believe. He wanted to argue with him. Hugh, Hugh, a couple of years earlier, actually asked me to write to the TCCB, as they were, saying what a disgrace it was. And then the year afterwards, he was in position where he was arguing for England under 19 players to take precedence. So, <laughs> et to Hugh. Um, but I think with Dean couldn't play at Colwyn Bay, so we brought Phil North back in, who was playing minor county cricket because Duncan wanted a left arm option. And Phil promptly went out and enjoyed. And again, I can speak highly. Phil's god godfather to one of my kids, and he was godfather to um, Tom. So we can have a we can have a pop at him without any fear of any comeback because we're still very close. But Phil let himself down, overslept, didn't turn up at the ground, and we sent him home. And a couple of weeks at the end of the season, we we got a phone call. You know, Phil said, oh, fancy going out for a drink? And I said, well, actually, we're going up to Buckingham Palace. We're going to collect the trophy. And and there was a pause. And at the other end, he said, I could have been on that bus, couldn't I? (laughs) And you're just thinking, yeah, you could have played one game. 
helped us. Well, you could have won a championship, man. <laughs> one of my favourite chapters, Graham, was the one of Dean Conway. And I, I, I cherry-picked some of his little quotes. He described Hugh Morris having ankles like poppadoms. And yeah. uh, on Robert Croft, he said he, he, he was not a bit of a hypochondriac. He's a big one. Yeah. <laughs> you remember Dean? I do remember Dean, but I, I know Mike's been talking a lot, but I think he ought to talk a bit more because he knows Dean better than anybody, I think. And is I, I don't really know Dean at all. I knew him quite well 23 years ago. He was very helpful with his chapter, and he's gone on to big and better things after Glamorgan. But Mike, you know much more about him than I do. The one thing I, I would like to say, if we could just go back to Adrian Shaw, I, I haven't read this book for quite a while, and I was very interested in the way that every player had some sort of problem to deal with during that season, whether it was Adrian Shaw getting abuse from some supporters about being chosen ahead of, of Colin Metzen. There was Robert Croft, who, who was on England duty for some of the time, and then he came back into the side. He, he had a lot to deal with. He had the, the row with, um, was it Mark Eilot, Mike? Over yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that year as well, blimey, yeah. On a lighter note, Gary Butcher, 12th man, he wanted to go to Taunton on the final day and he used Darren Thomas's car, but he couldn't get it started because there was a lock on it. And, and so he, he watched the final day at Glamorgan on the television. Adrian Dale, um, his form <laughs> wasn't great, but he came up with this lovely phrase, I think, Mike, called immortality in the principality. That was the aim of the players towards the end of the season. They could see that they were in with a chance of winning the title. And da Daly, Daly was the glue in that team, I thought. You know, he, 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 was a, he was a wonderful player. Yeah. And then somebody like Tony Cotty. I mean, I really do. I, I didn't realise until I reread the chapter. He had an absolute a nightmare season, the season from hell in terms of uh, scoring runs. And he was vice captain and he was on the, you know, the senior group of players and and he was dropped, as you mentioned earlier, Mike. But then he came back and he played a great innings against Essex um, with Matthew to to salvage victory from the jaws of defeat. It was a it was a fantastic performance, and all the players had 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 something. I, I suppose the only one who didn't was was somebody like Dean Koska, who, who who was the the babe of the team. He actually played thirteen games. It's a fascinating portrait of professional cricketers in, as you say, Mike, another era, because everything mainly perhaps from 1997, when, when Glamorgan bought the ground, everything changed from that moment on. Is that right? Is that a fair thing? Yeah, I think it is fair. I mean, the, the, just quickly on Gary Butcher, um, he didn't have good form at Taunton because a couple of years earlier, he'd played the second team. He drove down there. And if you've ever been down there, you know the brown touristy signs that you see. It's got Cricket St Thomas, but it's written in two lines. You've got Cricket and then St Thomas underneath. And it's yeah. taking you to the left when Taunton's <laughs> to the right. So he ended up, and I think it's where Mr Blobby was, you know, it was the, the way they filmed the house parties. <laughs> so Butch turned up late for a second team game. So he, he didn't have good form when it came to Taunton. But you're right, every player would have had a challenge, but every county player has a challenge even now. Um, you know, they, they, it, it's a tough old school. Um, county cricket and it, especially in the last few years when they've been in bubbles and last couple of years rather they've been in bubbles and isolated and you know it, it can be a slog when you win it it certainly helps. Does it surprise any of you that Hugh Morris 
and Matthew Maynard are still central to, to the Glamorgan story uh, and the positions that they've taken up? Uh, if I can answer first, I'm not at all surprised. I always felt that uh, both Matthew and Hugh have got Glamorgan written right through their core. And I was personally absolutely delighted to see Hugh come back and especially Matthew. Uh, I, I would I would agree with that. Again, I know them both well. Matthew, I think, had that one opportunity and then it didn't work out. He's come back since. Um, with Hugh, I mean, people forget Hugh went away and got a lot of good, solid business experience with ECB, did an MBA as well. Mm. Um, mm. And, you know, as I said to him, I was the one who incurred the debt and he was the one who wiped it off. So fair play to him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Graham, Alan? Yeah, I, I think I just endorse what Joan and Mike have said. Um, Hugh, he had the chance to go to Lords. He took it. I think he did the right thing, bearing in mind everything. Uh, he got some very good experience there. He did an MBA. He had to deal with the Kevin Peterson stuff, if you remember. So he picked up a lot of really useful experience and he's come back. And I think he's a, he's a very safe pair. And Matthew, once again, as somebody said, he, he's got Glamorgan in his blood. And I heard him on a podcast the other day talking very articulately and cogently about the present situation and the future of Glamorgan. Um, it doesn't surprise me at all, no. I think the other thing, Stephen, if you if you listen to, I heard a podcast with Marnus Labuschagne the other day, and I couldn't believe how much praise he gives Matthew. I knew that he rated Matthew as a coach, but he was fulsome. You know, he actually said one of the principal reasons he's coming over is he learns from Matthew. And um, you know, I'm not suggesting that Matthew should be moving on and doing higher things or anything, but you know, he's a, he's clearly a very very good coach. He's learned a lot about committee diplomacy I think over the years because back in the day I don't think he was a diplomat at all I think he would admit that um, but I think as a coach he's, he's a sponge he just picks it up and learns and you know those two were I talked about me and Tony Deloy at the start there those two were very different as well you know in how they went about their careers um, but they got on and it, the common common language is Glamorgan cricket and they will talk about Glamorgan all the time. Yeah, I think really the only thing maybe it surprised me in terms of Hugh Morris is how soon it happened. I don't think anybody necessarily would have realised that last innings at Taunton would have been the last time we saw him coming out to bat. I was actually at the gate when Hugh Morris and Steve James walked out for that 11 runs that they needed at Taunton. I remember patting Hugh on the back. Good luck, boys. And obviously we know what happened there. 11 runs got the whole of Wales just descended on the Taunton pitch. Absolutely fantastic. And then, obviously, in terms of Matthew, then no surprises at all. Absolutely gutted when he left Glamorgan the first time and just really thrilled that he's back there now. I couldn't believe Steve James couldn't count, could he? Because I think they needed they needed three, four or five or something. And he, he dabbed the ball down thinking Andy Caddick had moved because he'd just given up. And Hugh's running off the field celebrating. And Steve's, oh, oh, we've won. You know, and he gets engulfed, <laughs> lost his bat, chaos. <laughs> Two final questions, and I guess they may be the same answer for both. Your memories of the final day and the win, uh, and your strongest abiding memory of the season. Well, I'll kick off if you like, Stephen. Uh, it was a very important week, if you remember, in the in the history of this country and the world, because uh, Wales narrowly voted for devolution before Glamorgan's victory, and sadly, Princess Diana was killed in a car crash in Paris just after it. But um, my memories of the final day, of the final match in Taunton, uh, are about 
me and my 12-year-old son, Tom, going down. We saw the latter part of Hugh Morris's and Robert Cross's partnership and Adrian Shaw's half-century as Glamorgan reached 527 all out. And then we watched in, in wonder, frankly, as Somerset was skittled out for 285 with Dean Koska taking uh, the final wicket. And then Glamorgan's second innings was short and sweet. All hell broke loose. I remember the crowd's reaction. Alan was obviously in the crowd along with me and Tom. I think from what I can remember, Glamorgan had taken over Taunton for the day and some of the night. And uh, I remember seeing the players on the balcony and Robert Croft singing. And I suppose the abiding memory is the sheer joy on the faces of everyone involved. It was absolutely brilliant. Um, a short postscript to the day. Um, eventually, my son Tom and I headed off to a nearby farmhouse only to find that there'd been a double booking. There was no room at the inn, literally. We'd been, uh, no, this is the truth. We'd been due to sleep on a couple of camp beds in the snooker room of the farmhouse. But because of this double booking, we had to make do with a small four berth caravan in the middle of the farmyard. And it was there, as I lay reflecting on such an extraordinary day, that I actually got the idea for the book Daffodil Digs. In terms of my strongest memory of the season, I've hinted at it already, Steve. It's uh, the penultimate match against Essex. Three reasons, apart from the fact that I was there. That uh, second innings batting collapse and Matthew Maynard being dropped on naught. How important was that? The Morgan needed 149 to win. They were 13 for two when Matthew joined Adrian Dale. He nicked a catch into wicketkeeper Barry Hyam's right glove off the bowling of Mark Eilott. In and out, Matthew out, then in. And I'll never, ever forget the collective gulp of relief from the crowd as the catch went down. Second thing is what happened 13 runs later, because Tony Cotty replaced Adrian Dale, and Matthew and Tony, as I mentioned earlier, produced a captain's and a vice-captain's innings to see the Morgan home and set up the showdown in Somerset. Now, both those players were superbly focused under intense pressure, and... As I again hinted earlier, it was the belated and welcome return to form for, for Tony, who had experienced a miserable season with the bat. And finally, it's a story I included in the book, Steve. You'll, you'll probably come across it. It's told by Peter Walker. Uh, as we said, he was with the Cricket Board of Wales and he was watching the match against Essex. And there's a superstition in cricket that we all know that if a stand begins, you don't leave your seat in the dressing room in case the team's luck changes. Now, Peter found himself listening to what he called, and I quote, one of the great bores of Glamorgan cricket. And he couldn't leave because he dared not move for fear of jinxing the Maynard Potty Rescue Act. So he stayed there for an hour and a quarter listening to this guy. And finally, the person in question had to go to a business appointment. Peter said that he stayed where he was until victory was assured. I've got three. One is of the day itself. And I remember getting a hug from David Morgan afterwards. David Morgan is not a hug person. You know, he was chairman of the club, went on to be chairman of ECB, chairman of MCC, chairman of, you know, everybody. <laughs> but, and he actually came up to me, and MGF, he used to call me MGF because we called him FDM. And I got a hug from him. And I, that, that was just so rare. He was a cordial handshake person. And I'm going to tell my Dean story here. We could be here all day if I really wanted to tell them all, but I'm going to mix the two. Because one of the consequences of winning the championship is we got a, or David Morgan would have got a, a communication from the Palace, so St James's Palace, saying, do we want to go to Highgrove? We did it at the end of 93 because he was the patron of the club and he invited the players on the staff. Towards 
the end of the evening, he was terrifically well briefed. I wouldn't say he was a cricket buff, but he knew most of the, the leading players, to be fair to him. And I was in the group at the end with Matthew, Andrew Davis, Dean, and I can't remember who the other one was. But we were told on the bus by the ECRI, sorry, I'm going on a bit here, but three things you do not do. You do not initiate a conversation. You do not touch at all. No, no, no tactile, nothing. And you call in your majesty. Uh, sorry, your highness. I think it's your highness, actually. And then yeah. sir. And so those are your three rules. And I thought, you know, okay, Darren Thomas and Arlen Evans may have struggled to pick that one up, but I wasn't too worried about that. <laughs> but he came to the last group and the conversation had dried up. He'd obviously had all these chats with everybody else. And there's a pause. And then Dean put his hand on his shoulder and I thought, oh, God. <laughs> and then he started a conversation by without calling him anything. So he broke all three rules in one gesture, effectively. And he just said, oh, I saw you were at the, uh, the Spice World film premiere the other day. Obviously, the Spice Girls film had just come out. And he just, he didn't know what to say. Clearly, there's a bit of a smirk <laughs> on his face. And then he just said, who's your favourite? I just thought, you can't ask the heir to the throne who his favourite Spice Girl is. It's just not done. Uh, terrific physio that he was. I thought he was completely out of order there. And I thought the, 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 the equerries and the bodyguards were really coming. But he clearly loved it. He clearly loved it. Did you get an answer? Um, I, I'm not going to reveal the answer. It would compromise <laughs> I think Dean tried to force him into an answer, but he, he wouldn't come up with one. Um, but for me, the biggest memory is the camaraderie and the fact that during lockdown, well, we had some faggots for the Tom Maynard Trust a couple of years ago. We got the whole team together again. Um, OK, we couldn't get Wacker and Duncan, but Daly came over from New Zealand, Butch from Croydon and, you know, Cots from Hove and so on. And you can see straight away they're just in. Um, and that's something that they'll always have. And it's something that we'll always have. And you can't, you know, the, the book is great because it actually, it's, it's a record of everything that happened. And it, it was a, a very, very chaotic year. There was something going on every week, um, but it was brilliant. And, you know, Graham Fowler, a friend of mine said, a couple of, couple of years ago, I heard him speak and he said, you look back professionally and you recognise what was the time of your life. And for me, that was the time of my life. There's no, there's, you're not going to beat that, ever. The day at Taunton, I went up uh, with my husband, Howard. Uh, we went up and stayed overnight. Uh, it was a very exciting day, seeing everybody arrive at the ground and everything. Nerve-wracking, nail-biting, as Mike said. I smoked at that time as well. I was dying with cigarettes. But it was an exciting finish, and to be invited up on the balcony uh, to take part with the celebrations, with the team uh, and the colleagues and, and Howard with me as well. It was really, really exciting day. My abiding memory of the whole season, besides the visit to Highgrove, because I'm a royalist, was uh, also the team uh, and uh, my colleagues. It was my first season. It was a pretty torrid beginning to the year for me personally. Uh, and they were all very, very supportive uh, of me, got me through the, my first season. Uh, and then the other highlight I had was the open top bus going through Cardiff uh, with the players and everybody and the trophy. If that was your first season, you must have thought that was standard then. Well, I was hoping that that standard had been levelled, but uh, it's... Uh, you quickly it's found out that that wasn't the norm. <laughs> no, not at all. It was a long time till we got to Lords. <laughs> Finally, Alan? Already mentioned the, the Essex one-day game that season. That was another one that we travelled down to, to, to Chelmsford to see that. And 
it's very rare in those days to even get cricket that sort of covered in mainstream media. I remember going home and seeing that Glamorgan were on the news at 10 and quickly found out that it was actually because of the, the two incidents during the game rather than actually anything to do with the cricket <laughs> itself. So obviously you had Croft and Islet and then you had uh, Darren Thomas who celebrated a wicket, didn't he? And, uh, yeah, he punched uh, Irani's helmet, didn't he? Yeah, yeah gave, uh, gave Ronnie Irani a good whack there, didn't he? And uh, Well, I, I remember that, that, that was the, it was the, I think the third item on News at 10, but it was before the um, volcano in Montserrat. And I was busy watching it, thinking we've got, we got a few issues here. We've got some problems here. So, yeah, that, that was one memory. And then, obviously, Taunton then just going down there, as, you know, as I said, the whole of Wales, it felt at the time, it descended on Taunton. Absolutely fantastic occasion. And uh, one of the incidents that actually happened to me personally during that game, well, I say happened to me, it was me that caused it, actually. But uh, I, I wasn't quite aware of cricket etiquette at that point and uh, I, I got so engrossed in watching it and all of a sudden one of the umpires started calling over to me and I didn't realise that they were calling at me at the time. Steve Watkins fielding, I think it would have been at long on. Al, you're in front of the sight screen. <laughs> I was totally unaware of what I was doing and uh, that, that sort of uh, raised a bit of a, a smile from uh, from Steve, certainly not from the umpires, but uh, that's one memory I have. And then obviously then the celebrations, just really the crowd descended on the pitch. We ended up in the bar afterwards. I ended up, uh, as I said, in the book as well, having a go on a bugle that was being passed around the bar, which is just uh, totally surreal. And, did, Wack, uh, did Wacker still have his Nelson Mandela mask on at that time? I think he may have done. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I never understood that. Why? What, what was that doing there? And the, another one with Wacker, actually. There's a, a photo in the book of the team with the Welsh flag. And it was actually my friend's brother who gave the team that flag. And Wacker, if you notice in the, in the photo, Tom is actually holding a bottle of bud. Yeah, I found yeah. out afterwards it was Wacker that gave him that bottle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then obviously the, just after, the morning after then, we'd been staying at uh, Sedgemoor Travel Lodge and uh, Tony Cotty and Rob Croft came in. They'd obviously had a, a fair few drinks the night before, missed breakfast, so they, they'd come into the Travel Lodge for, for something to eat, both wearing dark glasses, both always really chatty when I saw them. And they barely said a word. It was, it was just unbelievable. Thank you, Alan. Uh, thank you, Joan. And thank you, Mike, for, for giving so freely of your time and, and no your problem. memories tonight. I think it's, we wouldn't be here if we hadn't had the book written. So perhaps we need to give the, the final words to Graham. Graham, yeah. can you sum everything up for us? Yeah, I, I'd just like to say that... Um, I talked about the format that I used in the book that I wanted to involve everybody who had contributed. And uh, it, it was my first book and I'm very proud of it. I wanted the players, the staff and the supporters to have their moment in the sun to explain their part in the achievement. And I wanted to pay tribute to not only the sporting heroes that we've been discussing, but the unsung heroes, uh, the backroom staff, the people who helped create the environment to enable the players to perform to the best of their ability and achieve this unexpected success. Uh, and that's why they all have their own chapters. Memories of so many people and stories have come flooding back to me over the last week or so while, while I've been rereading it. And um, I know he won't want me to do this, but I am going to give officially a big thumbs up to Mike 
for his help. Uh, initially for embracing my idea with such enthusiasm and arranging for everyone to talk to me, he then read the manuscript and made the occasional suggestion to amend it. Uh, Mike, it was great working with you. You mentioned earlier about the time of your lives. Um, you were there at the heart of it. I only came in once it had all happened, basically, but I really felt that in, in a strange sort of way that I, I was part of it because I was a Glamorgan supporter. But um, without your help, uh, that book wouldn't have been written. And as I say, I'm extremely proud of it. And I'm, I, I think it's a, it's a good record of the three championship wins. Obviously, it's concentrating on the 1997 one, but it, it, it links back to the 69. It links even further back. And one story which, Stephen, you probably saw was the way that um, David Irving, uh, managed to track down one of the remaining or the last remaining member of the 1948 side. And, and that's another thing that I'm really proud of, that we managed to get that into the book. And there was a picture of him. I've just got very fond memories of the time, certainly very fond memories of, of writing the book. It, it was hard work, but everybody was so cooperative. Uh, it was a real pleasure to write. Thank you. And it's been a real pleasure listening to you all recount those uh, those days as well tonight. Thank you all very much. And um, we look forward to putting the episode or episodes uh, covering this championship victory uh, out on the air. Good luck cutting all my stuff out. (laughs) (laughs) If you need more stuff on Dean, I've got another 45 minutes if you want. Many thanks to Graham, Mike, Joan and Alan for sharing their memories with us. The book Daffodil Days can still be bought online, so if you don't have a copy, why not search one out? It's a great read. Next week, we try to capture a moment in history as spectators were let back into Sophia Gardens for the first time since the end of the 2019 season. We go behind the scenes and talk to supporters who were part of Glamorgan's test event on Thursday the 3rd of June. We hope you can join us again when we'll hear some more stories about the great game of cricket in the great country of Wales. Hoyleval, bye for now. Macrosech Gisilti, e bosioch mwcpod1921 at gmail.com. Neid ewch yn tydalen Facebook, Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast. Neid yn tydalen Twitter, at Welsh Cricket Pod. Do you have a story you'd like to share with us? If so, please contact email mwcpod1921 at gmail.com or go to our Facebook page, Museum of Welsh Cricket Podcast or our Twitter at Welsh Cricket Pod.